Okay, if you'll turn in your scriptures to 1 Peter. 1 Peter, uh, I'm going to begin reading in verse 13 of 1 Peter chapter 1. Even though we looked at that verse 13, I'm going to continue on starting there on through verse 16 this morning. So 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Let's pray together as we have a chance to be in this portion of God's Word. Heavenly Father, once again we thank you that you're a God who has spoken, that your Word is truth, and we pray that your Holy Spirit would carry out that teaching ministry for us today, that we would understand fully the things you've said, understand them in our minds, certainly, understand them in our hearts, that we would recognize in light of your truth If there's anything in our thinking and in our actions that need to be changed to please you and to align with your word. Give us alertness of mind, Heavenly Father. We'll thank you ahead of time as you do those things, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. As you know, the context of the verses today, we've been learning about the need to grow up in our faith. That salvation, which is a key focus of the verses preceding what we're looking at right now, this great salvation is but the beginning of God's plan for life of his children. He intends that not only that we would be saved, he intends that we would become disciples. And by the way, one argument for that very truth, which is... And an, an, an argument that really can't be set aside is this. The vast majority of the epistles are given over to growing, not how to be saved. Now, does that mean the message of salvation is not important? Well, of course not. That's the central message. That's what we seek to, we seek to share with the lost so that they might find Christ. We would have no hope if it was not for that great salvation. But let's face it. After we come to know Christ, there's a big chunk of our lives for most of us ahead of us. And God focuses in on that bigger chunk. And he says, listen, I've got some purposes and plans for you as my child now, as my redeemed child. Uh, We're supposed to keep growing. And starting in verse 13, we encounter three of the pictures of what we must do to be growing and pleasing the Lord. Last week we were talking about preparing our minds for action. Today we're going to be talking about being holy in all of our conduct. And Lord willing, next week we'll talk about setting our hearts on the fear of the Lord. Three perspectives, three dimensions, perhaps a better way to say it, of what growing is all about. Uh, Last week as we were looking at verse 13, we were talking about the command of preparing our minds for action. That spiritual growth begins, first of all, in our thinking, in our minds. Of course, it begins with salvation, but we're already assuming that's in place. 
Uh, then it turns attention to our minds. And literally, we're commanded to gird up the loins of our thinking is really the, the Greek here. Uh, tucking up your mind is a good description. The King James Version actually uses the term girding up. And I think it, in this case, it's one that really does capture the Greek. The fact of that image, as we looked at it, was the image in that era where people were wearing robes or togas or other such things. They had to tuck up those things in their sashes or belts in order not to trip over them when they were doing hard work or they were running or something of that sort. And God uses that image and he says, listen, your mind's like your clothing. You need to tuck it in. You need to get it controlled. You need to gird it up. Uh, because nothing would be or should be more embarrassing to you or to me than to trip over my mind, even as a redeemed child of God, where I've let my head get me into trouble. I've let my thinking stumble me. So God says, don't let that happen. Let's gird up your minds. And he says you do that two ways. He said you, be, you gird up your mind by being sober-minded, first of all, keeping your thoughts under control. The Greek there referring to the idea of don't be intoxicated. Well, there's an obvious application. God doesn't want you drunk. <laughs> but secondly, in the broader way that word is used in the Greek is this. Don't live in illusion or delusion. Because some people live their lives in an illusion. Uh, they live their lives deluded about things that are really important, and they build their lives around stuff that's really false. Uh, that is the characteristic of humanity. And God says, I don't want that to be true of you. I want your head sobered. I want you focused on what's true, which, by the way, ought to automatically direct us to thy word is truth. <laughs> this, is, this is where we get our heads right. And this is where we understand life properly. Uh, and by the way, it's a command that can be carried out. Philippians 4.8 calls for us to focus our thoughts, set our minds on these things. God says, as redeemed children of God, you have that capability of making that choice to do that. You need my enabling Holy Spirit to carry the choice through. But as a child of God, you make the choice. You have to make the choice. And then he said the second part of it was getting our hopes focused properly. Make the hope of your life the grace that's to be given, that great inheritance that we saw earlier in the first chapter. God says, make sure your hopes are built on that. Don't build your hopes around some sort of temporal blessing. Don't place your hopes as a Christian around God working out some scenario of your life in a certain fashion. You don't know God's purposes and plan, and we still live in a fallen world. No, don't put your hopes there. You put your hopes on the great inheritance that is ours in the Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. Which is why, as I say earlier in the chapter, they focused on that. Well, today, he moves on in verses 14 to 16, and he says the second of these commands, <clears throat> after you've been preparing your minds for action, is committing yourself to be holy in all of your conduct. It's not just our minds that are the issue for us, it's our wills. Our wills have an important place in growth. The word will refers to volition. It refers to the place where we make choices in life. What is our will? Where we choose the behaviors and the actions that emerge. And therefore, the will in Scripture is all about obedience. That's why he starts off and says in verse 14, is obedient children. You're redeemed children, but now is obedient children, because <laughs> there's a difference. You can be redeemed and disobedient to the Lord. Uh, 
You can obey the gospel and disobey God as an orientation of life. So he says, no, no, as obedient children, if you're going to set your wills on obedience to the Heavenly Father, this is where how I want you to be. I want you to choose to act in a holy manner. You don't choose to act in a holy manner so that you'll be saved. None of us could be holy enough to be saved. That's why we need Jesus. That's why we need to turn to him. And you don't choose to be holy in all of your conduct in order to stay saved, because even with that choice, we're going to do a dismal job of this thing. You know. So uh, the fact is, it's not for either of those reasons. We do it in order to grow. We do it in order to please the Heavenly Father. He says, choose to be holy in all your conduct. If we've really been redeemed, then our new heart that God has given us longs to please Him. Uh, as Romans 7 talks about, in, in my heart, I, I, I long to do the will of God. But he sees another law at work in the members of his body fighting it. But a new heart wants to do that. Well, let's look at these things further. Let's begin by recognizing that God wants us to obey the command to be holy. As obedient children, don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. God says, I want you to set your will. I want you to choose to be holy. You have to set your will first before obedience follows. You have to make choices. Obedience is like a means to the end of holiness. It's not the end in itself. Holiness is the end. But you have to be obedient to get there. You have to be setting your mind to be there. And so he says, set your wills on this as obedient children. We're called to do that clearly in these verses. Because God wants us to align with his ways instead of aligning with what he calls the ways of our former ignorance. Hey, listen. This passage, there's all kinds that do it, but this passage ought to, ought to make it plain to you that God doesn't mince words with us. He doesn't try to paint the picture differently than it really is. He is saying, as my child, you could be ignorant. You could be living in ignorance. He doesn't say, oh, we're just a little misguided. He says, you're ignorant. Ignorant. In the word, it's a good translation of the Greek here. I mean, it's a, it's a word reserved in the Greek for the fool. He says, you're ignorant if you're not doing this. Kind of step back and say, well, that's pretty, pretty hard language, Heavenly Father. And he says, I know it is. I chose my words carefully. Don't live in the ways of your former ignorance. The ways of our former ignorance is how we chose to live prior to ever finding Christ. As we lived according to all of those other pressures of the culture around us, the system that we are a part of, the social system and so forth. Those were ignorant ways. Listen to these verses because this underscores this straightforward sort of language of God. In Acts chapter 17, verses 30 and 31, as Paul is sharing the gospel at Athens, listen to these words. The times of ignorance, there we encounter it again, the times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. 
because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. The resurrection, by the way, is the confirmation above all other confirmations that everyone is lost who has not turned to Jesus Christ as Savior. God is confirming it by the resurrection. There was no other reason for his son to suffer and die unless we had no other way in order to be saved. Right? But notice the terminology, the times of ignorance. That's God's description of humanity. That's God's description of our world. I, you know, I've taught many, many years in the graduate faculty at Penn State. That was his description of all my colleagues. The time, I'm not saying all of them were unsaved, but the ones who weren't saved, they were ignorant. They were smarter than I was in some ways, but they were, but they were ignorant. They were ignorant of the truth, you see. And so they were living in a way that God describes as ignorance. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 and 18, he says, Now this I say to you, and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, you know, like you were walking. He says, in the futility of their minds. Not in God's truth, but in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding alienated from the life of God, now listen to this, because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Once again, God doesn't mince words. That's his description of everyone who has not turned to Jesus Christ. They are darkened, futile, and ignorant. And he wants to save them. (laughs) He doesn't save them because they're so sharp. He saved them like he saved us. We were a piece of work, but Jesus died for us. Our hearts were convicted by the gospel and by the Holy Spirit, and we came and repented, and that's how he saves all of us. They're darkened in their understanding. Romans 1 picks up the same theme, doesn't it? In verses 21 to 25, it says, Although they knew God, they didn't honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and in their foolish hearts they were darkened, And claiming to be wise, they became fools. That's God's description of the best that the world comes up with. Futile thinking, foolish hearts darkened, fools living in ignorance. That's God's analysis. You say, well... That's not going to make friends and influence people. You say that sort of thing. Well, God says it. I didn't say it. God said it. And you know what else he said? To you and to me as redeemed children of God, he says, you've wasted enough of your life in ignorance. You lived as ignorant people before you came to know Christ. Don't waste any more of your life living in ignorance. Later on in the fourth chapter, he comes back to this theme in 1 Peter. In verses 1 to 3, he says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased away from sin. So as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God, for the time is past that suffices for doing what the Gentiles do, do. Living in passions and sensuality and drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry, etc., etc. He says, you've already wasted enough of your life. I didn't expect you not to waste your life before you found the gospel. 
It grieves my heart that you waste your life after finding my son as your savior. That's what God's saying here. And he's saying it's a very real possibility for the believer to waste their life as a redeemed child of God. Why? Because they're giving over their lives to carrying out ignorance, as God describes it. Our former ignorance refers to all of those habits of life, of thinking and acting, that were part of living apart from him. What the Bible calls the flesh, calls the old man. They're ingrained in us. Our brains are ingrained and patterned by them. Paul describes this, as I've said already, in Romans 7. He says, in verses 21 to 23, he says, So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies very close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. And by the way, no one ever said that unless they were redeemed, because our hearts are wicked and in rebellion against God. The only one who could ever say I delight in something is the one who's been redeemed. But then he goes on and he says, But I see in my members, meaning my body, my thinking, my actions, my behaviors. I see another law waging war against the law of my mind and trying to make me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. God says, listen, all that came out of that former ignorance in your life didn't go away because you became a believer. It just sort of went below the surface. And it's still there, locked into thinking patterns, locked into behavior patterns. And those Thinking patterns and behavior patterns want to take control again. They want you to act in light of what you've always acted like, to align with those things. And so God says, listen, I want you to choose instead to align with your new heart and not the flesh, not the former ignorance. In Galatians 5, he says it this way in verse 16 and 17, But I say to you, walk by the Spirit, and you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. The desires of the flesh are obviously still there. He says, but you won't satisfy them or gratify them. He says, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. And the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. These are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. And that's what God's talking about here. Talking about holiness, choices. Uh, deciding in our lives, I don't want to waste any more of my life. I've spent enough time, as the fourth chapter of 1 Peter puts it, <laughs> living that sort of way. And by the way, he's not talking only about immorality and gross sin. He's talking about mindsets, worldviews, orientations. He says, listen, what the world thinks is in opposition to me, and what I think is in opposition to the world. What I see is important, the world doesn't see as important. What the world sees as important, I see as unimportant. What is directing your thinking? What is directing your lifestyle? He says, don't tie in with your former ignorance. Because your former ignorance can become your current ignorance if you don't listen to him about these things. The command is pretty clear to do this. But I want you to also understand, as is true of all of these commands... God will not make a choice on our behalf. What do I mean by that? Whenever there's a command in the scripture directed to us, it is a volitional focus of command. It is something we are called by God to do. 
If God has called me to make a choice, it doesn't matter how many times I plead with him to make the choice for me. He will not do it. Why? Because we're not robots. We're creating his image. We are responsible to make a choice. One of the great griefs, I think, among many believers is that they see something that's not right, and instead of making a choice to make it right and then look to God for grace to carry out that choice, they keep praying and praying and praying and praying and praying for God to change this. And once he changes it, then they'll act different. That's not the way it works. We make choices. God commands us to make choices. And then he commands us to do it in a way that draws on his strength to carry it out. But unless we make the choice, sort of like salvation, isn't it? Unless we make the choice, what he does to make us new creations and all that, it just is all held, it's, it's all right here. It doesn't go forward because there's a choice involved of repenting and believing. That's the way the Christian life is lived. Once we choose to holy, be holy, to get rid of that former ignorance controlling our life, then God enables us through the Holy Spirit. Colossians 1.29 is the classic verse on this. Paul is speaking and he says, To this end I toil, struggling with all of his energy, which he so powerfully works in me. Notice, he is choosing to toil in direction, to act in a certain way, but then as he's doing it, he's struggling it through with all of God's strength. You don't struggle through with God's strength to make the choice. You make the choice, and then God's strength enables you to carry it through. Do you, do you follow the difference? And if you mess up the equation, you will do nothing but fall flat on your face. We are called upon to make choices. Now, if we choose to continue to live, according to our former ignorance, as he puts it here, as redeemed children of God, and apparently that choice can be made by people. Understand there's going to be consequences in our life. Think about in the context of a family. Uh, and they have a child who's faced with something where they can choose to obey or choose to disobey. And the child chooses to disobey. I know just theoretical for most of us. That never happened in our families. But uh, let's assume, you know, that that could happen. Uh, in the best family, in the ideal family, there's a consequence, isn't there? It's the dysfunctional, disastrous family where there's no consequence from disobeying. And let me tell you, the family of God's not dysfunctional. All right? We've been adopted into his very family. Uh, if we choose to disobey, there'll be consequences. Hebrews, 11, or Hebrews chapter 12 and verses 5 to 11 says uh, the fact that we serve a Heavenly Father who loves us enough, He's going to discipline us. We're not listening. He's going to do things to discipline us. He doesn't do things to make your choice for you. He does things to make it clear you're refusing to make the choice. Do you see the distinction? Hebrews 12 puts it this way, My son, don't regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when you're reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It's for discipline that you have to endure. God's treating you as sons. 
For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? And if you're left without discipline in which all have participated, then you're illegitimate children and not really sons. Besides this, we've had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. And God's after righteousness in our life, okay? But sometimes based on choices we're making, there's a very painful process to get to the righteousness, right? Because we're not doing what God's calling us to do. And so God in love takes us to the woodshed to a certain degree, where it has to be done. He'll do it. He'll do it. Now, what's the point of all of this? The point of it all is that God says, listen, I've redeemed you. You're my chosen children. I've redeemed you to live a life of holiness, It's been true since Adam and Eve onward. I'm wanting you to live a holy life. It's going to be true until the Lord Jesus returns. I mean, there's not like any window of time where this isn't going to be the purpose of God. Now, to really live a holy life, I think we need to understand what he means by holy here. Because everything kind of rises and falls on that. So let's look at it. What does it mean when God commands us to choose to be holy? He says, don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but he is he who called you as holy. You also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. The word holy, as we encounter it in these verses, is a translation of the Greek word hagios. The word hagios means to be different, to be set aside, to be sacred. In the way the Greeks used this word, it had both a positive and a negative aspect to it. And I want to go over those po- the positive and negative with you so that you understand what he's talking about. On the negative thing, hagios, holy, means to be separated from something that is not holy. You see, so that's in a way negative, something you don't do, you're pulled away from. You cannot be holy if you're continuing to be involved in the things that are unholy. To be holy means that I'm choosing to be untainted by the world, by the flesh, by the enemy. I'm choosing to be untainted. To be holy in the sense, using that separation idea, means that I'm separating from those things that conflict with God's truth. I'm I'm separating away from the patterns of life that conflict with God's clear teachings in the scriptures. I'm making a choice to get away from that stuff and not conform to it any longer. Now, by the way, a quick note on the side of this. We're called upon to be set apart from that, but not isolated from it. What do I mean by that? Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 11 19, he says, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of the world, or the greedy, or the swindlers, or idolaters, since then you'd, have to, you'd need to go out of the world. No, I was writing you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of the brother in Christ, who then lives in these fashions. Don't even eat with that type of brother, he says. You and I can't get... Holiness is not a matter of us being isolated from what's going on around the world, around us, and in the community. It means not to be a participant in, to be living in ways that uh, 
that demonstrate that we're separated from that holiness. So separated in patterns of life from that which conflicts with God's law. The positive aspect of hegios, holy in the Greek, is this. To be dedicated into or consecrated to something. Literally, to be undistracted from. And it's used in terms of, uh, in the scriptures, in terms of not being distracted from service of the Lord. Not pulled in different directions, but being focused and surrendered to that task. Think of how it's put in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, in the midst of some illustrations of what it means to grow as a disciple. He says, Share in suffering is a good soldier of Jesus Christ, because no soldier gets entangled in the civilian pursuits, since his aim is to please the one who's enlisted him. So he uses the example of the military. He says, listen, if you allow yourself to have several groups you're, appoint, you're, you're an, answering to, there's no clear chain of command anymore. Things will just self-destruct and fall on them. And he says, I want you to live in such a way that you're undistracted, not pulled from a surrender and dedication to the very service of the Lord. Serve him without distracting priorities. Serve him being dedicated to understanding we were set aside to serve him. That doesn't mean everybody's in Christian work. It just means that none of us, before God, are in a place where any part of our life is outside his intention to be holy and to be serving him in it. It's not like you put it off and put on. Certain days you're this way, other days you're that way. All of life is service of him. The Old Testament example of holiness was the, very, was the tribe of Levi. They were set aside from other things because God said, okay, I'm setting you aside. I'm making you holy. That didn't mean all of them were great people, but it meant as a tribe, they were dedicated for the service of the Lord, keeping the temple going and all of that sort of thing. Uh, And he says that's how the Christian life is sort of worked out, serving God with all of our life. Sort of what I think he meant in the fourth chapter of 1 Peter here, where he says, "You've, you've wasted enough time living like the Gentiles live. You know, from now on, live for the will of God. Fulfill his purpose and plan. Whatever that is for you, wherever you're working, it's not Christian work that we're talking about. It's orientation of life. And he says, finally, there's two practical steps to get there. Number one, we're to choose not to be conformed, as he puts it, to our ignorant passions. The word conform here means to orient or fashion. It's the same word, by the way, translated in Romans 12.2, where it says we're not to be conformed to the world, meaning the system, the culture around us, that we're not to uh, fashion ourselves after it, to orient our life and actions around what the world sees to be important. Here he says, listen, I want you to choose not to conform to these ignorant passions in you. You have a choice to make, and God says, I want you to make the right choice about whether your life is conformed to the passions or to holiness. Now, you don't have the strength in yourself to carry out such a choice, but you're called upon to make the choice. Passions, epithumia in the Greek, refers to all of those deep feelings and drives that make up the human condition. We all know what those deep feelings and drives are all about. 
<laughs> and God says, listen, uh, I don't want you conformed to those. I don't want you to be the, I don't want you to be victimized by that. I want you driven by my purpose and plan. That's what it's about. And I can give you the grace to make that possible. So in the scriptures, the word passions is a synonym for former ignorance. It's the same, we're talking about the same things. And the fact of the matter is, as I've already explained, those passions, that the habits of that former ignorance still lurk under the surface of our life. As Romans 7 says, they're out there kind of waging war, trying to get us to make the wrong choice about things. He says, so choose, choose not to be conformed to the former ignorance. Then choose, in the positive sense, to be holy in all of your conduct. The word conduct has the idea of habitual behavior. God says, I want you to choose to be holy in all of our conduct. The word all is the operative word here. A holiness that reflects and touches on every aspect of our life. What does that mean? That means you do not have the right to pick and choose what you're going to be holy about. God says, I want you holy in all your conduct. We come before God and say, well, I'll be holy in this area, in this area. Maybe later on, I'll be holy in this area, this area, this area. But right now, this is what I'm willing to give to you. God says, I'm not willing to take your gift. And if you expect me, through my spirit, to give you grace and peace and love and gentleness, all of the fruit of the spirit, while you refuse to focus on seeking to grow in holiness, you are deluding yourself. Because I'll tell you what my Holy Spirit's work is all about if you're rebelling against me in these things. His work is all about convicting your heart so you realize you're in rebellion against me. His task, 100%, is to bring you to your senses so that you bring it before the Lord and say, what a dumb person I've been, Lord. I've been living in my ignorance. I want to be right. You follow? God isn't splitting the Holy Spirit's work up so he empowers you in certain ways while you continue to try to do that. No, no. He says, I want you to be holy in all of your conduct. You can't pick and choose where that's going to be. Because the very act of picking and choosing means you're disobeying the command. So it really doesn't matter what you picked. All right? uh, you already are disobedient by the picking. So the question is, is all of your conduct growing to reflect holiness? Is all of your life at the feet of the Lord Jesus? I mean, that's really what it comes down to. He then ends this rather sobering section, and I'll I'll freely admit it is. He says, listen, since it's written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. It is God's own holiness that is our core motive for all of this. Our core motive for being holy. And, And the argument here, the logic, is very simple and straightforward. It's like this. Like father, like son. That's the logic. That's the principle. Like father, like son. In Ephesians 5.11 it says, Be imitators of the father as dearly loved children. 
That's what he's saying. So, what's my motive, Lord? Why do I want to be this? Because, like father, like son, or daughter. That's, that's, that's your task. That's what I've called you to do. Uh, I want you to be this way. It's a choice. The choice to be holy, as he's talking about it here, a volitional choice, is a choice to say, I am going to live in a way that reflects the values of my true family. God's family. I am going to determine to live up to the family name. I don't want to choose to be in ways that don't do that, that bring dishonor to the family name. Brothers and sisters, one of the great barriers to people turning to Christ is Christians living in their former ignorance. Because their life is a dissuading of the truth of the gospel they seek to be sharing. People aren't stupid. They know whether it has really penetrated to the heart of somebody. They might not be happy with what they see, if you're serious about the Lord and wanting to live for Him in those ways. But they see the difference. They see the difference. So when you start talking to them about something and they see that, well, you've, you've been able to compartmentalize this pretty well in your life, it undercuts the message we're seeking to share. God says, oh no, listen, like father, like son, I want you to live in this way. And because I'm your father, as Hebrews 12 says, I'm going to discipline you if you're not doing it. Uh, you can expect some woodshed sex, uh, experiences with me. Uh, I'll do what I have to do to get your attention. It's not a game, brothers and sisters. We're in this world for a purpose. Don't waste your life, you know. It's, it's, it's sort of like present your body as a living sacrifice. It's like there's not an alternative for the believer from surrendered discipleship except the alternative of disobedient carnality. There is no other alternative. You're either one or the other. And it doesn't matter how much you try to dress it up. You are one or the other. You are one or the other. And God's will is that you would be a growing disciple. That's, what he's, that's why he saved you. That's what he wants to have happen. And these things that we're looking at are a step in that direction. So he says, listen, I want you to prepare your minds. I want you to get growing, first of all, by preparing your minds. Then secondly, as we looked at today, I want you to set your will on the choice to be holy in all of your conduct. Next time, Lord willing, we'll look at the third step where he says, I want you to set your hearts on living in the fear of the Lord. We'll talk about what that means. Apart from God's work in us, this will only result in us falling on our faces. But it will also result in falling on our faces if we expect God to work before we choose. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for a chance to be in your word this day. We thank you that you're a heavenly father who takes your role serious. You've got a purpose and plan for our lives. You don't want us to waste our life. You, we spent enough of our life already living in all of that former ignorance, Lord. And you want to bring us into a place of productivity, growth, where we reflect increasingly your word and your purposes and plan. 
where we reflect increasingly the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us, Lord, to be determined not to live in the ignorance that once controlled us is a practical step of life. And we'll give you thanks as you do that, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, brothers and sisters, good to be together with you this day. Think about these things and uh, look forward to fellowshipping with everyone next week.